Hi, everybody, and welcome to the VFX Insiders Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Cedarleaf of Cedarleaf VFX, and today we're talking to Leslie Robson Foster. Leslie started her career in 1980 in the BBC Television Design Department in London, England. She worked on news and current affairs programs as a graphic designer and animator and went on to learn cinematography and directing. In 1990, she was offered a job in Industrial Light and Magic's commercial division as a director and moved across to the U.S. She went on to direct commercials, mostly with a visual effects component for various production companies on both coasts. Leslie started directing second unit and acting as a visual effects supervisor on bigger projects and eventually went on her own as a freelancer. Since then, she has been working in New York City and Los Angeles on television series and feature films. So without any further delay, let's get on the phone with Leslie. Hi, Leslie. Hello, Scott. How are you? I'm pretty good. How about you? Good, good. So, Leslie, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Appreciate that. Hope you and your family are well with all of the, the new normal that's out there for us now with COVID. Yeah, that's, um, it's, uh, it's a strange time indeed. I was one day away from starting a new shoot when, when the lockdown happened. So it, it's really peculiar. Yeah, uh, we were in the same situation. We were right in the middle of uh, getting the schedule out to go for our next scan. And all of a sudden we get a call from the producer saying, oh, we're so sorry. This has gone force majeure. We, we've just got to, we're, we're just, we're stopping all production. And it's, ah, well, that's unfortunate. So now everybody has to readjust yeah, and, and, and here we go. Yeah. So yeah, who knows what it looked like when we come back. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. There's all kinds of conversation, all kinds of talk, and that's something I would love to get to your input on as we, we go here. But um, we were just, uh, all of us are just uh, seeing what's next, when the dust settles and when's the green light going to be turned on again and, and what kind of mad dash is it going to be. So it'd be interesting right, to absolutely. get your, your viewpoint on that. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So as you know, the show, we're trying to get... Um, at least for me, it's just understanding the whole inner workings of the visual effects industry. We come in on our, on our capes with our capes on to do what we need to do to help with the, the visual effects. Uh, but um, I've just been intrigued by the whole industry and I just wanted to talk to people who've been in it a lot longer than I have and just kind of see how, how it affects you and how did you get into the business? And we can kind of start off with that. How did, how did you start out and then eventually get to your role as a, a VFX supervisor? So, um, you know, strangely enough, um, uh, and, and I realize I'm very fortunate, I, I wanted to do this all along um, from seeing movies and being interested in things on, uh, you know, um, the, the, the bit of the movie that was the, the fill on the screen in the spaceship or the, um, the graphics that were, um, you know, with the heads up display or whatever was the first thing that caught my eye, which is really <laughs> odd. And um, I started my career at the BBC um, in uh, London and I was a graphic designer and an animator. And I had uh, been at Goldsmiths College doing fine art and I, I just really, this took my fancy and I, I just chased the people at the BBC. I chased them and chased them until they gave me a um, uh, work um, study thing, which they call internship in America. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I was working with the guys who would do the kind of work that I wanted to do because the vendors at the BBC were uh, people like, these names won't mean anything I'm sure to you, but Lodge and Cheeseman and, and the Peerless Optical House. And they were the people who were actually doing those screen fills and the Esper sequence in Blade Runner and all that. You know, it was a very tightly knit industry in London and everybody knew each other. Mm -hmm. So when Ridley Scott was making... Blade Runner, he went back to the people that he knew from his days at the BBC. And so oh, wow. I had a really nice uh, leg up into almost exactly what it was I was interested in. So um, it, it was just a, I don't know, I know I'm fortunate and a lot of people spend time working out what it is that they would like to do. Mm -hmm. And I just was going full tilt from, from the start. So you were an artist, a designer, uh, as a when you were younger then so that you'd enjoyed more of the graphic design or you you knew straight away that you were going to be doing art and design and animation for film it, it was moving pictures that i wanted to do and mm -hmm. um you know that's why i headed to the bbc because in those days um i'm really old in those <laughs> days they had um uh graduate training schemes and they uh, the BBC saw it as their responsibility to people the industry because they were a government run, you know, funded um, by people organization. Yeah. So they would train everybody. And I don't think that exists anymore. But you would go in there and you would get trained up fully in your chosen profession. And um, you would learn about the professions of the people near you. And they would have things called sympathy raisers where they would teach you to be the DP and the director and everything else around you with a view to you going on to do one of those kind of things. So wow. I was so fortunate and I stayed there for a lot of years. Uh, well, five years or so. Uh, you sort of honor bound to, you know, give back um, mm -hmm. and stay for a bit. And then everybody leaves, of course. And, right. Um, I went out and was started directing commercials and stuff and then got offered a job at industrial light and magic uh, commercials in the States. And that's what brought me over here. I see. Well, then ILM at the time up in the Bay Area. That's where Correct. everything was. Yeah, there. they had an office in New York too. I was jumping around back and forth, but they had a, a funny um, commercials division called Lucasfilm Commercials. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's where I, uh, I was directing commercials. I always had a big visual effects component. Interesting. I have no idea that they had a commercial division. That's, that's very interesting. What type, what type of commercials did you do? Where, where were your clients as far as heavy effects? Uh, driven oh, you know, they were Burger King and Pizza Hut and, and like people who had the money, you know, in those <laughs> yeah. days. It was a very peculiar collection of directors. I have to say, God knows why I was in it. There was Barry Sonnenfeld, Michael J. Fox, Matthew Vaughn, um and me really <laughs> it was really <laughs> hot <laughs> and uh, it um you know lucasfilm of course you know i was so excited to be close to them but you know lucas arts digital is a big conglomerate you know and there was a mm -hmm. it wasn't lucasfilm as if we think about it you didn't get any near to any of the you know the pointed end but you were in the building and there was the creature shop and all of that kind of stuff so it was very cliquey and um uh, you know um, like all commercial production companies uh, a bit cutthroat so um uh, it was it was really nice to be there and it did my resume no harm at all but i left after a couple of years 
couple of years and and then from there you branched into did you go into more freelance then or did you go into another house or studio at that I've, point i've always been freelance i've uh, uh i've i just cannot handle being employed um and <laughs> And yes. the good things and the bad things that go with that, you know, like not knowing where your next job's coming from, but being free to turn things down and, you know, making a lot of money if, if you did get busy. So I was in another couple of production houses as a director, um, always with a bit of a visual effects bent. And then um, I just, you know, I think it was a, it was a writer's strike in the early 90s or late 80s, early 90s, I suppose. And the commercial work kind of dried up a bit and uh, I just jumped and I became the visual effects supervisor on um, Sex and the City was the first television show and okay. then um, Ugly Betty and it just, you know, then I just started going from show to show, movie to movie and, um, and you know, found my natural home um, as visual effects supervisor and second unit director. Great. And then at some point you and I crossed paths in New York for the boardwalk and I'm trying to see, um, Oh gosh, what, when, how long ago was that? That was 2000. Was that 2010, 2011? Right, yeah. yeah. Something like that. Right. I got onto boardwalk empire season three and, um, invited you to come and scan the boardwalk that was about to be demolished. Yes. Uh, Right, which was the beautiful set in Greenpoint. Yeah, was that them. was that was amazing. It, the, the time period, it just it felt like you did. You just stepped right back down, right back no, into that exactly. era. Yeah, but you that, know, the, there was a three hundred foot blue screen on that. If you remember, it was terrifying. Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then they blew it up. I remember they the. I remember yeah. they were advertising or they were telling everybody, you know, be. You know, what's going on? What's going on over there? And uh, they were right, but it was part of the story. You know, the, the mobsters bombed the, the nightclub and we, we, you know, the fabulous special effects people. Um, um, Stevie Kershoff um, rigged the boardwalk to blow and um, we shot it live. And then, you know, it was a lot of visual effects involved. I had to do the people separately mm -hmm. and the skyline separately and of course the ocean and the boardwalk separately um yeah. but we had the real explosion that was massive and fabulous um and then we still shot on it a few more times in the rubble as it was part of the story too oh wow um, and then we rebuilt it out at the rockaways actually on the ocean oh really is it it's still there today or is it still no, it's, it's no. all mothballed so no it, you know it's long on. Yeah, I think it's a, a liability thing. But when it was up on the on the boardwalk at the Rockaways, it was just heaven. You had such sort of house and apartment envy. You would want to live on this set. It was so cool. Yeah, I know. There, isn't that amazing though? That you just to get there's some sets that are just they just resonate with you. And you know, definitely, definitely when we're right. in there, yeah, the art department and just how they right. they make it so real and just so. Yeah, it's it's so convincing. So it's absolutely, you know, that's a a thing that I I feel pretty strongly about. Uh, visual effects will be part of the art department, generally, or vice versa. Before too long, um, mm -hmm. you know, I just have such a lot to do with the production designers. We have to these days, um, you know, work on where they stop and I start and all of that kind of stuff. It's um, 
it's definitely one of the main relationships that there is these days, visual effects and production design. That's an interesting point because we were just on a show too that had a really heavy art department and for us to be asked uh, through the supervisor for more information and more data, it was that was the first experience that I've ever had working with the art department. And right, it's, it's becoming, you know, it depends on the actual production designer as well about whether or not they're savvy to this, but there, there aren't yeah. many that I've come across who, who can't be <laughs> these days, you know. Yeah, it, yeah, it is definitely, uh, things are starting to blend a lot more, like you said, so interesting. Yeah. So are we at current day now? Are you able to share what, what you're working on now or what you're going to be hopefully get, getting back on? I know you and I had touched yeah, base a little bit. But. <laughs> yeah, so generally I try to do two projects at once. I've got a team of people and we kind of changed the visual effects on television model a bit in the last five or six years. And I travel with a with a small in-house team. We're all still freelancers, but we get production to hire us. So I've got, you know, um, a producer, a map painter, an editor, a handful of compositors, assistants, data wranglers and stuff. And we go around from show to show and we do the heavy lifting and the design and we're the front end that faces the director. And, um, and only then do we hire um, vendors. Um, wow. So it's, it's a different thing. So at the moment, I'm doing season, I will be doing season four of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel for Amazon, mm -hmm. which is a, a great show and a period piece, consequently has a lot of visual effects in it. It is a great show. And that's yeah. Just, yeah. It is a great show. I love it. And it has a lot of really hard technical work because the director is a big fan of very long steady cam oners where we could go for as long as 12 minutes without a cut where everything has to happen. So, you know, the best will in the world, it, it wants to be a one, but it generally never is. Um, and there's you know, <laughs> several shots blended together seamlessly, of course. Mm -hmm. And then there's some, uh, you know, all the period work, of course, we've shot in Paris and Vegas and all sorts of places. And they had to be made into 1959 and um and there's a bit of magic realism sometimes the way that we get through things you know like we'll go flying down a mail shoot after a letter or something <laughs> like that it's just a thrilling thrilling show to work on yeah. um, and then also i was about to start the very first day of shooting was march 12th was the gilded age which is the american uh, an hbo show for the creator of downton abbey um, oh, okay. Julian Fellows, and he's written this nice uh, period piece set in 1881 in New York, and it's all about, you know, old money and new money, about mm -hmm. the Astors and the Carnegies and Stanford White, who designed the plaza and so on. And it's, um, it's a lovely, juicy, big period piece with a virtual backlot. Nice. That's a, well, then you, you hit the key word there, virtual backlight. So we have to definitely yeah. circle back to that. <laughs> so, so, well, I, I really like your idea about that, your little strike team. I think that's great. Is that kind of something that you, you, uh, you put together? Is that your brainchild? Or did you? I, I, I think so. I didn't, I, I could, it could not have been, there could have been other people doing that. And I know that certainly there's an in-house soup on the production side for, you know, most big things. Most shows, yeah. Yeah, but but um, I, I I don't know. I, I it's it takes a you know a certain type of producer to want to do it, and then when, once they've done it, they don't want to go back because 
you know, if you're vendor dependent, um, you can't have them at all the meetings, you can't have them at the, you know, uh, on a whim to come to a meeting or to run out to a director scout, not the tech scout, something that wasn't planned. So for me and the people I've worked for, it's worked out very well. Now I know some shows don't need it or want it or want to spend that money, but given the nature of my specialty, which is kind of period pieces, it it works really nicely. So that um, obviously then you're kind of going into your day to day that that's kind of explaining what you do then as, as the VFX supervisor um, for these period pieces. So people understand and recognize that, that's kind of your, your expertise. So if, if what, what right. is a day to day? I mean, you did explain too that you you, you do talk to the director and. Um, yeah, I'm on the production side. I'm always um, near production. So I spend my time in prep with the director, the production designer and the DP. We mm-hmm. work out how to shoot things and what we'll need. And then, you know, as it gets closer, we'll start to say, I'm going to need a day of plates. I'm going to need this scan. I'm going to need, these elements, I'm going to need, you know, this, that, and the other, or you're going to have to shoot it like that if you want to avoid this and all that stuff. And then on the shoot, you know, when there are big things, I'm there standing there right beside them because with the best will in the world, you can say, um, you know, this has got to go like this, but then, you know, something will happen, a van will park in the way or, (laughs) you know, an actor's got pink eye that day or, all of these things that have come across you and you, if you're there, you can say, it's okay, just go ahead or no, we can't do it now. And um, you want to be with those few uh, really, you know, key members of the crew to influence them. If Mm -hmm. you don't want to be just running around fixing stuff, you want to be part of the team. And I, you know, that's what I want up and coming people to realize that the supervisor is a production person, not a post person. And that, you know, there are many ways to get into the visual effects supervising role. And, you know, people think it's, oh, you come off of the box, you come off being a compositor into it. A few do that, but not many. It's much more likely to have been production oriented so that you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. The fact that I was a director and I'm hurtling backwards through my career is um, very useful (laughs) (laughs) because I'm production savvy and you know, I know what problems the director has um, when you're in the hot seat and you just need to get going, the lights going and all that stuff. So I'm known as being production friendly, but I also know how much money we've got to do something and how much time we've got to do something. So you know, there's a, a pragmatic, realistic approach to, well, you, you just can't shoot that without a green screen because I'll have to rotoscope it and I'll be there till Christmas and we can't do it. You know, so <laughs> you, you want to know that you're going to be heard to be a useful member of the crew. So daily, that's what I do. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a tech uh, advisor and a, uh, a worker outer of how to do things. Excellent. So I'm I'm curious now because you do have this nice prepackaged. It's a team that everybody knows what they're going to be doing, and the director probably has that confidence now that okay, well Leslie and her team are here. I don't have to worry about that. And then, so is it true then that you kind of have this nice packaged group of information or data just to hand off into post then, and you usually just hand that off, and and you you don't get involved in post at all or do you oh, no, do dabble in no, no, no. i'm on all the way through i'm you are I, okay you know, I'll, I'll shoot the elements or we'll we'll 
we'll shoot the master plates and work out what it is we need to shoot as elements. So then I'll go back in and start a second unit to get those. And then I'll, you know, do very sophisticated temp visual effects with my team so that we can learn as we go and work out what it is that will make it look best and then get approvals. And then, yeah, the team is with me and um, I supervise it all the way through to the end. But, you know, the nature of the episodic piece, you'll still be shooting while you're finishing something. So it all happens at once. So it's prep, shoot and post, and it's relentless and it goes on and on and on. And (laughs) um, I'm there uh, all the time. Now, you know, in between seasons, I've done some, uh, you know, bigger movies and stuff. And that for me is sort of easier and a bit of a rest because you get, you know, a two hour script, you plan what you're going to do and you do it and you, you go forward and it's not like the, 12 day episodes of an episodic television. I was on a big movie last year, year before last, The Goldfinch and Roger Deakins, you know, big star DP, which was a thrill to stand beside him and everything. But it was a very, very different animal. And, um, you know, I'm really happy to do both. And what that was like a 13 week production versus the, it's not like you say, the episodic is just continually going, continually moving and evolving. It, That's it right. Was, yeah. yeah. And the, you know, that you do have to be in three places at once often, hence good having <laughs> a team again. But I brought the team onto the movie too, but it was all prep and then all shoot and then all post. It was a different, it's a, it's a I much gotcha. thing. I see. Yeah. It's more, yeah, it's more segmented. Like you said, I see. Yeah. That makes more sense. So, well, I have to look at it from, from my a question on the episodic side. I mean, it's always me and on the, the armchair you know, VFX guy, I'm always looking for stuff. And I would have to imagine that in, in the episodic, the, the continuity of keeping continuity uh, has to be one of your major challenges, at least uh, uh, coming from my perspective. I, I couldn't imagine from day to day, from different types of weather to different locations, and then you're trying to pick up and go back into a story that you covered, you know, episode two or whatever. Uh, how, how do you deal with keeping that continuity and, you know, just trying to make sure that just everything stays in the flow and stays consistent. As You know, there's lots of other people before me who have that to worry about. Um, <laughs> not least production, script supervisor, everything else. And then, you know, the weather thing is a thing. That falls to me sometimes because, you know, they just decide that we have to replace the sky across the whole sequence or something so it it looks like it belongs but you know if the sun is madly going in and out or it took all day to shoot something and the shadows have completely turned around those are all problems that you have to deal with and that falls to the dp you know who says Mm. we have to shoot this now um uh or we have to put a huge big uh, soft shade big fly swatter big white frame thing over the whole scene so that it always looks the same. You know, it's like there's, there's 20 levels of people getting that sorted out before they would want to spend the money on me doing it. Okay. So, you know, it's, if it's a period piece and we're in a, a place where we always build the same building or something, mm-hmm. um, you know, if, if they're lucky, often they'll block shoot everything at one location. Um, so we'll know what we're dealing with but not every show can do that. So, you know, some shows have to go in the right order. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I can't, um, yeah. It's, it's just one of those, 
um, again, being in the industry, you just kind of know as, as long as you have, you can just kind of go with the flow and, and know what's going to happen and, and probably not stress too much about it, I would imagine. So, no, you can't, you know, and the thing is, you'd be standing there and I don't know, it's a big crowd scene and it, not everybody's supposed to be in, um, in period costume and then a bunch of people who aren't in period costume will come running through. Um, <laughs> but you've been doing, you know, it's a take that is five minutes long or something and, the, and it's a crucial performance piece. You have to be able to, you have to be looking, you have to be paying attention mm -hmm. and the director will look at you and go, can you get rid of those? Can you paint those out? Because they want, you know, the performance that they just had and they don't want to have to do it again because of the people in, you know, neon shorts that walk through. So, you know, you really do have to be paying attention to help out on big things, you have to be aware of what the big thing is, what matters, what part of the script it is. You have to be soaked in the story and mm. schedule and everything so that you can be the most use you can be. Otherwise, you know, you're just, like I say, fixing stuff that wasn't shot how it was meant to be shot. Although that happens is what you want to avoid, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine just that you're being paid and you're being, you're on this because of your expertise and because of your reputation. And that's a very good point to, to always be on your A game. Because it's just that when you when you do slip or you lose concentration, it's a, a ripple effect down the line. And it sure is, you know. And, and directors, some directors are very different from others. You know, some are very ordered, and you know what's going to happen, and you know it's all in the right right way around, and you don't get sidelined. Now, other directors, for example, I work for Steven Soderbergh a lot. You know that from the Nick. He just goes. You, if you go and get a cup of tea and you miss something and you didn't get your plates, it's tough luck. You know, he is, it's the best I've ever, it's the most fabulous set, really. It makes you so alert and frosty. You know, you just have to stay there. Now, there are no monitors on his set. There are really? no chairs on his set. You can't sit down. There's no video village. None of the things that you're used to on television. He's oh, wow. got the camera. And if you need big plates, you know, clean plates, all sorts of things, you can have them, but he's going to shoot them. And you have to just get up the ladder beside him or, you know, <laughs> run and ask him and he'll do everything you want to do. But he's just not interested in anybody not bringing their A game, as you say. It's great. It, and everything else feels leisurely compared to a soda book set. You know, I, it's just like anything. It's almost just like, you know, being a parent or going to school, running a classroom. It's it, the more organized you are and the more that you can kind of define what it is that you're trying to do and the, the, um, the atmosphere you're creating, it just makes it easier for everybody else. It just makes a better production. It makes a better product, makes everybody be. It be, really uh, does. It yeah. really does. And the efficiency with which he runs his set is not common. You know, there's a lot of excess and time wasting and chatting and all that kind of stuff. It's really fascinating to see the difference, you know, and the, he's famous for his eight hour days and the fact that he, you know, he edits in the van on the way home and all of that kind of stuff. And not everybody can do it. And not everybody wants to do it. And yeah. everybody, you know, a lot of people see the value in having a, you know, a collective rather than an auteur. Um, but it's, it's just different. And um, I happen to like it. Yes, I, I just having hearing you explain it, I would like it too. <laughs> it would just be, it would be fun to work on on a in an environment like that for sure. I mean, even 
still the, the whole industry is a creative environment, which is, you know, why I guess most of us are in it just because we, we have that creative streak in us, but it is, it is nice when, when you do have a, a nice uh, organized and streamlined project you're working on. It, it, those are a lot of fun. So Leslie, I cannot believe that we are 30 minutes in already. Um, this will be a good time for us to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk to you about some fun stuff, like the worst and, and best part, and also some of the craziest things that you've come across in your, in your career. So we're talking to Leslie Robson Foster, VFX supervisor. We'll be right back after this break. everybody. We're back with Leslie Robson Foster, VFX supervisor. We were just speaking with Leslie about her background and how she got to being a VFX supervisor for primarily episodic television. Very interesting stuff. Leslie, thank you for coming back and hanging with us here through the break. So we are going to talk to you now about, and I guess I've, I've also been told that I shouldn't say the worst or the best or the good or the bad. It's probably what you enjoy the most and what are your biggest challenges um, <laughs> in the industry sir in really your day start getting really personal um, <laughs> yeah, so. you know the, the best part for me is collaboration <clears throat> i just love the fact that my job touches almost every other person in the crew you know apart from the bosses you know from production and and production designer and the dp and everything i have to speak to props sometimes about you know, the fact that they've got lacy umbrellas on a green screen and I'm going to get into trouble. Hair, hair department have got feathers in their hair and, you know, while somebody's smoking and I have to key it out. Or <laughs> <laughs> there's lovely stuff happens on Mrs. Maisel. You know, I'll warn the costume department that there's a big green screen going to happen that day because we're shooting on a train. And sure enough, uh, Mrs. Maisel will come to set in a green screen colored outfit. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I hustle with the grips and we put a blue screen up and then she puts her hat on and it's blue. So, you know, there's just, <laughs> as you know, Mrs. Maisel's really famous for its costume. So, you know, yeah. uh, it's me that has to change, not her. So, you know, I, that's the best part. Uh, there isn't really a designation in the crew that I don't have to have something to do with. And it's, it's the best piece. It really is. It's the best piece. Yeah, it's it's exciting just to even, you know, the small part that we have in it just to be able to, you know, to ha have that collaboration, knowing that we're, we're doing what we need to do to make make things happen. And, you know, we have to be there at a certain time and we got to get what, what you need to have scanned. And it's nice to have, again, that co collaboration being able to be called upon and do what we need to do. And it's, yes. it's always fun to, to be, again, a part of something like that. So I agree. I, the collaboration aspect is, is wonderful because, you know, again, it, 
I, I hate the phrase, but it does. It takes a village because everybody has a role, no matter how insignificant it may seem at the Absolutely. time. Absolutely. You know, there, there was a really interesting article I read lately about how what a funny business model we have as a crew. Because, you know, it's true that 150 strangers with their titles can come together and just work in a day. We don't yeah. need to get to know each other. I mean, you do because you're on a crew that lasts nine months or something. But yeah. the truth yeah. is, everybody knows where their job starts and ends and so does the next guy and it's a really strange business model but it um you know just through history and from you know the 1900s when it started and and these jobs got defined which are slightly different in in different countries like in in europe when you shoot there's different different designations and and you know the camera department's a bit different and the art department's a bit different so um it's uh it's really a great great model i think here you know, I think that's, I've, I've never thought of that. I think that's an interesting topic maybe to discuss on another podcast is just how things are different in, in different uh, countries and different parts of the world. You know, still the end results pretty much the same. You get, you, you've got a picture or a movie or a TV show, um, but is it, what are the commonalities and what are, what are the, what are the similar aspects and what are, where is it really different? Right. Um, that, that's really interesting. I've never really thought of that before let's let's flip it now the the worst thing that or the biggest challenge <laughs> oh you know the, the challenges are, are you know fresh daily people say they'll do one thing on the tech scout and then do the complete opposite you know so that thinking on your feet thing is uh is the main you know trouble like so you'll say i'm going to shoot this 270 degree set and the art department will dress that and then without fail, the director will turn around into those few degrees that's not dressed and not <laughs> periodized and the vans are parked there and the trucks are parked there and it happens all the time and you just have to stop moaning and not be surprised. So there's that. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have one funny story about, you know, things coming to set that are not finished completely and I you can see it in my notes there I'm not sure if you want me to tell you the story no no please yes this is <laughs> this is this is good <laughs> um, we were on the Nick which was the HBO Cinemax show and it had a lot of surgery um in it it was set in the 1900s and it was um it was an amazing show that Soderbergh did with Clive Owen, but you know, a lot of the surgery and blood and guts and all the rest of it, you know, some of it was done dry and we would add the blood. Some of it was full up working special effects models. Anyway, so the surgeons would practice on pigs and there was, you know, photography to be done of somebody slicing open a pig to learn about their intestines and the pigs showed <laughs> up. And although they were beautiful, they weren't anatomically correct. Oh. Uh, and they actually didn't have um an anus <laughs> we're, we're not a g-rated show I know. <laughs> so, um, it was very strange and um Mr. Soderbergh said to me could you put those on there and um, it was really funny because I think I was also working on boardwalk at the time and would you believe it we had a plot line where somebody thought they saw a dead body on the beach and it was a dead pig now boardwalk in its all its glory bought themselves a dead pig instead of having a model oh so, wow there, there you go with the reference that i needed <laughs> see it all works out 
it all it, works it, out. It all works out. I remember I actually wrote an email to Stephen and said, that was my first pig asshole visual effect. And he wrote back and said, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> That's going to be, you know, kind of on the, the annals of your career, you know, the, the highlights. And it really is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's, that is awesome. Any other story like that that comes to mind? I know until we, we move on. Um, but I just, I do like people's stories of just being able to, um, you know, getting a curveball thrown at you that you hadn't had no idea that was coming. And it was just something that is a memory the rest of your life. It's almost you like know, I think in, in Sex and the City, often the actors would say that they would go nude and then mm. they'd change their minds and wouldn't want to on the day. Oh. So they would, um, they would come on the set with uh, modesty patches in all the right places and then we'd have to replace the modesty patches with real real stuff or whatever real, real bits real, <laughs> real bits. bits so it's like well where am i getting the reference for <laughs> yes. that was, that was real bit then so that was that was a good one too <laughs> yeah i don't know if i should take that any further but it's interesting that you can make someone very unhappy or you can make them um <laughs> very happy <laughs> so well let's let's move on to to this next question i love what you what you said here because it's i it would not anticipate this as an answer but the question is something that you you do that makes these movies possible but it's not appreciated that people don't by the millions millions of people that watch them but and i love your answer i love your oh, answer good. To that. So, you know, I, I, you can see the visual effects. If you, see, if you can see them and it takes you out of the story, then we've failed. Yeah. You know, I really don't like entering the Emmys or the visual effects awards, all the rest of it, even though the studios make me sometimes. And, you know, the before and after things come out, you know, later. But at the time, I don't want anybody to know what it is we're doing. Mm. And the, the best thing is when we've done something that seamlessly fits and I've taken it on my laptop down to the set to show the director and they've forgotten. And they're like, yeah, and? And it's great because they don't know <laughs> what it is that we put this here or whatever, you know, and then, then I show them the before and after. But that's my goal and that's the niche that I have fallen into, this period, seamless, realistic, photo real. Don't make anything up as a CG element. Always shoot real photographic elements, things. Mm. Like I would like to not have my name called out as, as having done these things because it's uh, that's that wasn't the point you know you know I, I think that's admirable I really do I, I I just you know some people do like the limelight and the, obviously all of us as humans like to be appreciated for what we do you know even if it's just a pat on the back or just a a, a credit or whatever but I, I really believe that that's that's a, a, a really good quality to to stay humble you know not You'll get the pat on the back and the credit, you know, where, yeah. it, where it belongs in production. Right, right. You know, the people were standing there when there was no plane on the runway or there was no oil rig in the background. You know, they know. And that's, that's all I care about. That's who I get my jobs from. My, yeah. You know, the public knowing is it's too specialized a thing. And, you know, in the early days, 
you know, of this stuff when there was, you know, a lot of fuss and every Tom, Dick and Harry saw the before and afters, I actually thought it set our industry back a bit, you know, cause now, you know, everybody's an armchair um, critic. Yeah. yeah. Yep. You're right. Um, me too. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, yeah, it's, I like that. That, that I think that's a really, you know, again, a good quality right. and a good, right. good perspective to take. So, well, Leslie, here we've got to ask the big question. I know everybody's um, interested to see where this is going. And I know veterans like yourself, have you been through, you know, quite a few storms, but I don't know if there's been something as a shutdown like this, maybe a writer strike. I think, what was that, 2008? And there's been um, other things. But where do you think the industry is going? You know, I guess in general, there's two questions. What would have happened without... COVID without this, uh, this lockdown. Um, but is that a two part question? Is that, is that too, too granular or should we just kind of see where, where do you think the industry is going now? Right. I think it's going to get sped up a bit now. You know, I instantly was asked to go and make sure that we could have virtual production if we wanted it. But, you know, for shows like the ones I'm involved in, it's still not quite there, but I'm asking the question. So like this week, I've been on the phone with Epic Games who have got Unreal Engine yep. and were part of teams that put together the Mandalorian virtual sets and all that stuff. So a lot of the things in Mrs. Maisel are scenes in clubs and not stadiums, but big theaters and stuff. So mm. if I wanted to have a virtual crowd, you know, and I was only allowed to shoot with 25 people when it needed to be 2,000, how can I solve that problem? So I've been asking those questions and I, I would have, before COVID, I would have just, you know, asked the question, realized that the capture methods are not there yet. I can't do volumetric crowd capture in mm -hmm. a good way that doesn't look animated right now. So I would have gone, well, I'm just carrying on with my, you know, green screen tiles then. But I have to now task the people who make these things to try and help me. So maybe we're going to go a bit quicker than we would have done for virtual set extensions and crowd and stuff. You know, it would have maybe taken a year or two longer than maybe it will do now because I'm prepared to pay money for somebody to find that, that solution for me. Do you think the industry technically is ready? Do you think you'll have that seamless effect that people won't notice? With, with the new technology being so new? Um, I do. I mean, looking at the Mandalorian, it's spectacular. Um, yeah. You know, it's great, yeah. but uh, it was very suitable. You know, there was distance sets, there was matte paintings in the distance. They yeah. smart enough to know that, you know, a foreground real practical object is worth its weight in gold on a virtual set. Right. Um, and, and those are the kind of things that I always do with green screen stuff and what have you. It's like, if you can get the actors to interact with something right beside them and the rest is, is a painting or, or a CG background. It's, it's much, much better than everything else. So yeah, yeah. I, I think that yes, the technology is there for some subjects. Yeah. I, that's interesting point too. Like you say, the practical aspect of it is just, you still can't get away from that, at least the experience and what I've been paying attention to. And, and you do, you, the more that you can put in the practical to give the actors a sense of where they are, but right. it, it would be really neat, though, to see uh, uh, kind of how the actors are reacting to the virtual. I don't know. Have you had any feedback from any any of the talent as far as do they? Oh, 
definitely, you know, on, on the Mandalorian and stuff, cause I, you know, I was consulting on those shows early on. The actors are so happy cause the, the rear projection aspect of it mm-hmm. uh, for that particular Unreal Engine thing and NCAM thing, they can see it. So they're lit by it and they're standing in it. And, you know, there's a 10 hour sunset because the shot needed to be at golden hour and it stays there and yes. they're, they're walking in it. And yeah, I think it, 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 you know, it's much, much better than green screen because of the atmosphere and because you can have, you know, practical smoke because you're capturing, it's all in camera visual effects actually mm-hmm. um, just means that the work's done in the opposite way than it's usually done. It's done first, not last. Yeah, there was another question that brought up too, as far as the facilities that are out there, how many facilities, like ILM obviously has the the virtual production. Uh, I don't know, are there houses in New York and, you know, other studios that have these uh, uh, LED screens or these backlit canvases? And do you think that it's going to be hard to ramp up to get more of these facilities in place? It's terribly expensive. You know, and it's a it's a coming together of a lot of different people and proprietary stuff and everything. So if I was to do it in New York now, I'd have to build it myself mm-hmm. uh, with the help of, you know, various different vendors. And that's what I'm yeah. thinking about right now. Who do I know that's really good at rear projection or front projection? Who do I know that's got enough computing power to bring it to set? So, you know, there it isn't up and running here and it is only on the big money things right now. But, you know, I'm working with Dineg out of Montreal for the Gilded Age, and I have mm-hmm. a, an AR app, an augmented reality app to show me my virtual set while I'm shooting going on and stuff. And so now, you know, I'm being a bit of a guinea pig for them, um, but that's not uncommon. And the third floor out of London and LA have had that going for Game of Thrones for a while now. Yeah. So it's it's needs must you know and if you keep up which you must do as a visual effects supervisor with the technology and all the rest of it then you sort of keep looking and you know what to ask for and you know maybe you'll come up with a new version of it that's just right for you and isn't overkill and isn't you know underkill yeah that's a great point i mean even for us just to keep up on different types of capture technology you you mentioned it earlier it's you know, it, it's evolving every day too, but it's just being able to push, you know, we get these really rich capture, uh, but then, you know, we have to push that data out and we, and then we always kind of dumb it down to get it to a point where artists can work with it. And it's just interesting to see now, how can the technology push all of this, this really rich 3D and virtual sets and locations. And it's, yeah, it's, it, it, it's going to happen. Like you said, there's a lot of smart people out there and it's yeah, just, there it, are. And those game engines, you know, the unreal engines, pretty interesting. You know, it, it's just amazing playing any video game. That's a new one these days about everything that's going on there. Now that isn't enough for us on a realistic, hyper-realistic, photorealistic show, mm-hmm. but um, it will be, I'm sure. I think so, yeah. yeah. I, I, it'd be really interesting to see what that time frame is. You know, mm-hmm. how, when is it going to, is it going to be weeks, months, years, who knows? But I, I think it's going to be a lot quicker than any of us realize. Yeah, and I think that the current situation will push it. You know? yeah, 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 absolutely. So, Leslie, let's talk about, we've touched on it 
a few times throughout the conversation here, but as we, we move into now bringing your years of experience to the up and coming or just to people who've been in the industry for a while who want to try to tackle the supervisory role or, uh, or just visual effects in general, what advice do you have for uh, people who are, are looking to do something like this um, in, in a supervisory role? Um, I think that, you know, you, you have to really search yourself about if you're a set person or not, because that's a different thing than being a compositor or an editor or, or a person that's sort of office bound, you know, just mm -hmm. wanting to go out occasionally and do your elements, isn't it? It, it being on set's a different animal altogether. So if, if you like the sound of that and you want to have a look at it and you're not employed in the business, I think that you need to just get near a set and have a look at it, uh, mm -hmm. be it as a PA or, you know, ask. And I think that being brave and, and, and getting hold of people is the best thing that you can do. And you're going to get, you know, a hundred no's for the one yes that gives you the break. And you just... <laughs> It's a, it's a very tough industry and you have to really want to do it. Otherwise go and do something that's more, you know, that's calmer and more reliable. But yeah. if you do want it, then you have to look at the movies, look at the, all those behind the scenes things on YouTube and identify the people. And I think you'll be surprised if you contact them about how people will help you because yeah. there's not one good person I know doing what I'm doing who wouldn't let somebody shadow them or go and give a lecture at a college or what have you, you know, we all do it. And if we spot somebody who's likely, we'll certainly kick them upstairs, you know, and bring them yeah. on. I've brought yeah. so many people on through my team. There's always a, a you know, the, the entry level position on my team is the um, data wrangler assistant. And I you know quite a few of those are supervisors now or compositors now, or, you know, the thing that they wanted to be doing. And it's the, it's the best and only thing that us who have been in it a long time uh, must do the mentorship and the bringing people on. And the, I just wanted to say something, um, you know, I get interviewed a lot and get press calls a lot for uh, women in visual effects. Mm -hmm. And I must say, I've, I get very angry about it. And I tell them that I certainly will give the interview or I'll go on a panel, but I'm sick to death of women in visual effects. I think it sets the cause back. If you're good at the job, you know, I'll give the girls a chance. And if they're any good, I'll help them. Of course I will. But I just think that this thing about singling us out as if we're doing it differently is annoying me to bits and <laughs> lazy journalism and it's another facet of the same discrimination that got me you know into oh she's a woman in visual effects it's a man's world so that's you can see i'm ranting but no no this is <laughs> you know it is so interesting how people take this this situation differently and they look at it from different filters or different lenses and you know it does come down to just performance, you know, at the end of the day, if, if you're good at what you're do, if you're, if you're, uh, you know, a, an assertive person, um, yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what, what's happening or, you know, what, what role, I see, you know, I see people just, go in for jobs with their gender on their sleeve, you know, it's like mm -hmm. you need more females in the, in the, you know, premier positions or whatever in it. You have to put your money where your mouth is. You have to do it. Um, and you have to get trained to do it. And we, we, as you know, women in the industry have to 
train up the people so that they don't fall down and set us back, you know? Um, and it's a post-feminist world. You just, you need to just be the best you can be, not, you know, the best female you can be. I couldn't have said it any better. That's a great point. There's nothing else to add to that. Right. <laughs> so I do like what you said here as well. I like it. It says, don't ask for work, ask for help. Right. Yes. You know? yeah. and, and that's what I've learned too, is that, you know, it's, it's a lot of times when you're in a situation and you're, you're trying to do something or you need something and you're trying to motivate people as well. It's, it's on the same line. I was told, don't, don't tell people what they want to hear or what you want them to hear. If you're trying to get a point across, ask a lot of questions. Definitely. Yeah. That's, you know, where does it come from? You know, the thing about the women and the discrimination and everything, it, it all goes back to your home and your education. It's systemic. So, you know, you bringing your daughter to do the sort of complicated work you do is the best thing you could possibly do. Yeah. Yeah. They, they still today, they've really enjoyed being out and in, in working, right. working on set because they're not afraid to do it. I know it's, it's hard work and it's long hours, but you know, you just teach them to say, you know, just pay attention to what's going on and just be quiet, patient, helpful, and, and just, uh, you know, get the job done. That's what Absolutely. we're there for. Absolutely. Let's transition here too. I think my sequence of questioning, maybe I need to adjust this a little bit, but because uh, we're, we're talking about uh, a funny story and you did mention a couple of other things, but let's, let's move down to like the, the work environments topic of drama. And it's just when you put like a mass of people together, you're going to have, you're going to have drama. From your perspective, where, what is some of the VFX drama that maybe you can't avoid, or maybe you can just look for it and then just try, try to avoid it? You know, I think the, the things, the force majeure things like weather um, are, you know, the, the, the rain, the clouds, the getting flooded, the, you know, things that are not in your control, you know, shooting out in New York City at night, big street scene, and everybody forgot that the Empire State Building goes off at midnight. <laughs> so, yes. you know, um, I've had that before. And, um, <laughs> you know, also we want to shoot a winter scene in the middle of July. So they put snow down that's chipped ice and then a, a herd of tourists come through and make snowballs. And, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just um, everyday stuff like that. There, there shouldn't be drama about your actual work. You know, you... you yeah. Everybody's, you know, on the shows I'm on, luckily, everybody's experienced, um, you know, if the act is sick or all the rest of it, you know, it'll be headed off at the pass because the producers really know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So the drama's got to come from much bigger forces than that, you know. Yeah. Well, and, uh, I, I think, yeah, I think the drama too, it also it, the way you're putting it too, it's just drama is kind of an outside force that you can't control. And I think those are, that's also kind of a, an iron striking iron type of thing. It keeps you on your toes. It makes you reactive as far as, okay, yep, we were dealt this. So what are we going to do? How are we going to, how are we going to work around? And yes. it's just, it, again, it makes you kind of think on your feet and, and, and pay attention. Right. That's What's the happening? best thing about, you know, when you get with a production team that, that are experienced and know what they're doing, it's just heaven. It's just heaven because, you know, they all of a sudden, you know, the extras bustle have broken down. So they'll have to reschedule the shots. The actors 
you know, sick or got a bite on his face or I don't know, something like that. It's really, <laughs> it's that, you know, back to your point of it takes a village. It, 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 it's so collaborative. It doesn't fall on anybody's head. And, you know, the good directors don't get phased by things like that because it's unavoidable. Right. Um, so you just have to think on your feet and move forward. And everybody's there. You know, all of a sudden I can say, don't worry about that. We can paint that out. Just go or, you know, whatever. It's like, again, just um, being part of the team and, um, you know, one foot in front of the other. Yep. I, that's all you can do in just day to day. And you, get, you right. just do it every day. Leslie, I, I love this question too. You know, your, your dream job. Are you living your dream job or is, is there somewhere that you're still trying? I, I am living my dream job. I, you know, uh, I am lucky enough to get a lot of offers of work and I'm picking and choosing which shows I want to do. And I'm really, really grateful for that. I've been doing this for 40 years or something now and I've seen it change from being completely analog to you know, completely digital to all of the things. And <laughs> there's got to be something good about being mature. <laughs> and, um, I think the thing is now that when I go and meet directors, I'm interviewing them just as much as they're interviewing me. And if I don't like the smell of it, I'll walk away. And I, I, I'm so grateful that that is true nowadays. And then if I hear about a job, on the horizon, like the Gilded Age, for example, you know, it's my job. I know it is. It's just got to be the job for me and I really want it. And hopefully all the players are people that I like the look of and everything, you know? Yep. So um, th that, that thing and the fact that, um, you know, I could also not work for a bit if there wasn't something good, although I've, luckily I have not had to. So yeah, yeah I, I just, um, I'm really enjoying the, the fact that, in my particular role, experience counts for something, and I don't have 22-year-olds snapping up my heels. <laughs> Kudos. I love it. I, I think that, you know, to be in that position is just a wonderful thing because, again, there's no stress, and there's just confidence, not arrogance. It's just a confidence that you kind of portray, and people are going to know that. People are going to sense that, and they're going to sense the the control and the, the experience, like you said, that, okay, yeah, we're, we're in good hands here. And That's lovely. Thank you. Yeah. It's so nice and also to be surrounded by like-minded people, you know, the DPs, yeah. production designers who know what they're doing. It's just a, everybody knows the right person to tell or to ask or to brainstorm with. And it's, uh, when it works, it's really great. Well, and again, another thing too, I think um, anybody who would be part of your crew is, is probably uh, at an advantage as well, because they are getting that, that 40 years of experience and maturity and they're, they're paying attention. I guarantee you that they're, they're watching and they're understanding and they're learning. Hopefully you might be inundated with a, a bunch of resumes <laughs> or people who are, are going to want to be involved in, in your team. So uh, that's fantastic. Great. Well, I think we're, we've coming up on our uh, over our hour here, Leslie. I would just love to continue our, our talk and maybe we can uh, do part two down the line here as we um, get back to work, all of us. But uh, before we go, I just didn't, is there anything else that, that you'd like to add or like to put out there? You know, we'll also have links on the show notes that, you know, anything that you would like people to see or to know or to view. Um, oh, great. That That's good. Well. I'll, um, I'd like to send you, I gave a seminar lately that was well attended 
it was called set etiquette for visual effects supervisors and um, it's not about technical stuff or anything it's about changing your socks at lunchtime it's (laughs) how to be comfortable how to be aware you know what it's like on the set where you should stand who you can get information from and it was predominantly aimed at positors who get thrown out onto set by their uh, companies and are not ready and that that's the that's over the years that's the questions I've got can I shadow you because I get asked to go and I I come back without my plates because the AD was horrible um, okay. so I it, I took it upon myself to uh, to make this document and give this seminar about that so I'd really like to share that with you if you're if you want to um, oh. put it on your um, yeah on absolutely Absolutely. I think even anybody would benefit from it. It, I think that's fantastic. I see a lot of people that are just deer in the headlights and like, oh my, what, what, what's happening here? And and it is, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. The worst thing you feel like you're always in the wrong place. You stand in there, you decide you do have to pee and you have to leave the set. And that's a moment Then you've missed your chance. You know, and I've been with some really stinky directors who, you say, I really need these clean plates. And they go, it's not going to happen, you know, and that's it. And you're left with that. Well, you know, you'd have to know how to get past that. And, um, yeah. you know, you can't come home without your footage. There's only you and the plate, you yeah. and the negative the next day. That's the best bit of advice I ever got. It's like, it doesn't matter. You're not there to be anybody's friend necessarily. Yep, you're you there. Get what you came for. Yep, you're yeah. there for a job and do your job. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's so I, I just I'd love to help anybody who uh, who needs that nice you know so that 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 would be the the thing I'd like to say. Wonderful, absolutely. We'll put that on the show notes and any other information out there. So, Leslie, thank you again so much for your time. Um, it was great having you on, and it was great to chat with you. And hopefully, we can uh, cross paths again here once uh, once we're able to move about. That would be lovely stuff. Thank you so much.